You are listening to episode 153 of This is Type 1. Today, we're unraveling what it's like to be dropped into the world of type 1 diabetes as a parent. Our guest today is Jay Rush, the men's divorce coach, whose son Odin was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in February 2022. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Colleen. Tell us who you are and the story of your son's diagnosis. Oh, so I'm an LCS certified life coach, and I primarily focus on on uh, men that are in the process of divorce or separation. And then I'm also a general life coach. And Odin, my um, five and a half year old son, was diagnosed on January 31st, but we spent the next six days in the hospital and. Uh, in Cabo San Lucas in the ICU. And I'm sure this is a story that's familiar with a lot of people that were diagnosed younger or of parents of T1Ds. But um, we were living in Southern Baja at the time. We had a little rental house on the coast. And um, Odin's mom was leaving for a week to go skiing in Canada with with her dad. And... uh, Prior to her leaving, Odin had wet the bed a couple times and had been noticeably dehydrated. And we just kind of chalked it up to uh, growth spurts. And um, she left and his symptoms got progressively worse. He was, the kid was downing a full bottle of Gatorade in like one, one gulp sometimes. He was peeing the bed at night routinely, his appetite had gone way down and he started to have some behavioral issues that I kind of assumed were related to his mom leaving. She's always been the preferred parent. So that was a tough one to kind of figure out if it was just because he didn't want to be around dad anymore or if mom was gone. But a lot of stuff was happening at the same time. It was very hard to parse if there was a real problem underneath it, because we hadn't had any significant health problems before. And um, I took him to the doctor on day five because it just felt weird. And it was a clinic in, in Todos Santos. And the clinician there was just like, yeah, maybe he's got a, an infection or something. We'll give him some antibiotics. So they sent us home with antibiotics, which, you know, have some sugar in them as well. And, um, I got him back and then he was in preschool a couple of days out of the week and his preschool t- teacher called me and she said, Hey, I don't know what's up with Odin, but he's just like sitting in a corner. Like he's, he's half asleep. He's not participating. You should probably come get him. Cause I can't watch him. I was like, okay, cool. So that happened two days in a row and I was communicating with his mom the whole time. And, and we were both talking about how weird it was. And we couldn't figure it out. The next day I took him to Cabo because we'd run out of our professional medical options in, in Toto Santos. And I took him to a pediatrician there and the pediatrician looked him over, did pretty thorough work, didn't ask the right questions. And I didn't offer the symptoms in, in an order that would really make sense. And he sent us home with more antibiotics. And he was like, he's like, he's got to have an ear infection or something. You know, I think I see it, you know, he's kind of grasping at straws. So that day, we were picking his mom up from the Cabo airport anyways. So we went straight from the doctor's office to Cabo airport. And she comes up to the car and she takes one look at Odin and she goes, where's my kid? And he, he'd lost like seven or eight pounds just in the eight, in the eight weeks or in the eight days that she'd been gone. He was lethargic. He barely said anything to her. He's like, he's like, hi, mama. So we got home to our rental 
and we were kind of we were kind of on pins and needles. We couldn't figure out what was up. And she woke me up at three in the morning and she said, Hey, Odin's throwing up again. I think we need to go to the ER. I said, Great, let's let's do it. So she drove to the clinic and I got some stuff ready because I had sort of this premonition that we would have to go to another hospital. And um she called me from the clinic and she said, the doctors just did a, uh, actually, let me back up. You might want to edit this. <laughs> so she woke me up and she said, Hey, I think he might have diabetes. And I was like, that is so weird. How do you know that? And she goes, well, I was just like, I was looking online for hours and hours. I couldn't sleep. I went to sleep. And then all of a sudden, like all the information just kind of clicked in her subconscious. And she's like, she's like, yeah, I think he has diabetes. So we, so she took him to the clinic and she made the clinician do a finger poke and he was at 506. Yeah. So he's super high. So she called me from there and I met her on the highway and, um, we just, we piled everybody into the truck and I drove what normally is an hour and a half drive from Todos Santos to downtown Cabo in 45 minutes. It was the middle of the night. So it was, uh, super easy to, get through that part of town because there was no traffic. And I called our pediatrician on the way there. And I said, Hey, can you come meet us? You know, um, we think he's got type one diabetes. So we went in there with a fairly clean idea of what he had. The pediatrician came in, put him on an IV started at least the initial plan to start controlling his blood gases and put him on an insulin drip. And they had to do a very controlled drip because if they, if they brought him down too fast, then that would have exacerbated the gases and caused uh, cerebral edema and stuff like that. So, and then in the process, he kind of took us over in the corner. He said, Hey, listen, there's only one thing it can be. Nobody's blood sugars skyrocket like this unless it's type one. I was like, and we're like, okay, that's it. And the gravity of it didn't hit me in that moment. But for Rachel, it was like, it was a bomb. Like she just knew immediately what, what the connotations were and, and what the burden was going to be for him and for us. And I was kind of clueless. And then they had us take COVID tests and Odin and I came back negative and Rachel came back positive. And so they immediately cornered us again. They said, Hey, listen, um, we're a COVID free hospital, so we can't have you here. So we're going to coordinate transfer to another hospital that can, that can help you out, which ended up being a blessing. So they sent us to a different hospital, just about three miles down the road, coordinated the, the ambulance. The ambulance ride, by the way, cost $80 cash. Right in the states would be eight hundred out of pocket probably maybe more. They got us to the ER. The pediatric surgeon, the pediatrician on call, came down. Doctor Cedillo, he was in control immediately. I was of course in like control trauma mode, like triage mode. Rachel couldn't come into the hospital because she had COVID, so she was outside waiting the whole time, and I was just checking in with her every ten to fifteen minutes. It took hours to do the necessary blood draws for him to get the diagnosis to then put him in the ICU. So we're in the ER for hours and hours and hours. And in the meantime, because of the nature of medical care in Mexico, as a tourist, they basically want cash up front or some assurance of cash up front, which makes total sense. But it's also inconvenient when you're like kind of in the middle of taking care of this, this kid that's almost comatose. So I was coordinating that. I was communicating with the doctors and the nurses. I was communicating with Rachel. And that went on for about three and a half or four hours. And then finally, all the pieces kind of came together. We got the ambulance guy paid off with cash from the ATM because he was hovering over me the whole time. We got the front desk sated 
with a couple of credit cards on hold. And they predicted the cost would be something like 200,000 pesos up front, which ends up being about, I want to say 10,000 US dollars. So they thought the total cost for the entire stay, about six days in the hospital, would be about 10,000 USD. We also had a tra- travel insurance policy, which note to parents listening, very important if you're traveling on the road, even if your kid doesn't have type one. Wow, that's huge. So yeah, we finally got in there, got stabilized, spent six days in the hospital. Odin's grandmother came down and she switched days with me in the ICU room every other day. And then we, uh, we put ourselves up in a really nice hotel for the other day. So we could just totally like self care and, and relax while we were there. And we did a really good job of sort of trading off because he was a little blonduero in, in Mexico. All the nurses and doctors and cafeteria staff and everybody just loved him. Like they were all over him and they would send him extra cheat treats of jello and pudding and things like that while the doctors are trying to stabilize his, his blood glucose. So there's a total disconnect there. I'd say overall, the the standard of care was really high from a compassion standpoint, like much higher than you'd probably experience in the States. Far less formal, clinical, and business-like. And it felt more like they truly cared about you. And everybody, you could tell the difference in expertise, however, in the medical staff was, it was sort of stratified. So the doctors were were the keepers of wisdom. Like they had all of the information. And then below that, the nurses were largely functionaries and they just kind of did what they were told and anything that outside the scope of that, or if they, if they asked them, if they needed to apply like critical analysis to the situation, they weren't very good at it. And so, you know, with type one, that the learning curve is immensely steep. And so for the first two days, we were really out of our element. We were depending on everybody else to tell us what to do. And as we got familiar with sort of the guidelines and the parameters, we started giving orders to the nurses and the doctors. And we started saying, hey, listen, we love the, the thought of bringing up more jello or more juice, but these things are off limits now. Like you have to tell us before they show up because we're, we're actually like getting him stabilized and we turn around and his blood sugar would skyrocket. And we're like, what just happened? He's like, oh, he drank that thing that was on his table. And like, what was that? Oh, it was it apple juice? <laughs> like, you can't do that. You're like, who so, put that there? <laughs> yeah, who put, yeah who, who put that there? And then we go have a really nice conversation. And it was like credit to the trauma that we could actually like control our, our emotions and still like, like kind of control the environment around him, at least until we got home. But also everybody was just so sweet and so nice that you couldn't really get mad at anybody for, for what they were doing. So yeah, we, we learned about type one. We slowly watched him go from extremely lethargic, almost comatose to actually like emerging and being his, his little boy self to actually being really frustrated with the process and like yelling at nurses and he's really traumatized by like the large gauge needles they had to to use for the blood draws and things like that. And we slowly became experts by virtue of Dr. Cedillo, our our pediatric surgeon who was amazing, but also his colleague in, in Mexico city. And I'd have to look up his name. I can't remember, but we teleconferenced with him every single night. And he basically gave us crash courses in type one management. And between those two, we were able to sort of bounce information off each other, share information, start paying attention to the metrics, start seeing what works and what didn't. We got him on a, on a um, flash glucose monitor. We got him on the Libre. So that's all they had down there. And then we got him on quick pins pretty quickly too. And that's all they had access to. They don't have 
easy access to Omnipod to dashes or anything like that. But we slowly started to learn the ground rules for MDI and managing blood glucose and sort of what what it would require and keeping records and um, carb counting and things like that. And I have a background in exercise science. So some of that was fairly easy for me to to bring on and made sense. For Rachel, it was a little bit more of a challenge, but she got the hang of it eventually too. And then after six days, they released us from the hospital. We went home to our rental in Todos Santos. And then three or four days later, um, Rachel, Odin, and his grandmother flew home to Denver. And I drove back up the Baja Peninsula back home. And then about a week after that, we met with, with our care team at the Barbara Davis Center in Denver. And um, we've sort of been on that track ever since. So throughout this whole experience, how is Odin done with it? I think he was terrified. I think he is and has been terrified by all of the different phases of the process. So initially it was being in a hospital and not knowing what was going on. And that was evidently very traumatic for him. And then it was the large gauge gauge needles and people with masks hovering over him and his dad holding his body and his arm while they did blood draws. And then he, um, you know, we sort of progressed from that to the MDI and MDI was tough because all of a sudden now he goes from zero needles in his life to five or six a day. And replacing Libres, you know, replacing sensors was an issue too. And also like, let's, let's think about like a normal five-year-old's existence. Like five-year-old childhood, people are telling you no all the time, normal five-year-old. And now you're a T1D and people are telling you no twice as much. And so that's hard too. And then every little step we've made, like every little advance, advance in technology. So going from like Dexcom G6 and to Dexcom G6 and um, the Omnipod Dash, you know, that's been a transition period for him. You know, that's been something new, you know, the ratcheting and clicking and the priming of the pump and then the cannula insertion and getting used to that. But he's got better, gotten better and better. What I'm really impressed with is his ability to take all of the information we've given him and be able to embrace it and make it his own. So now he goes up and he introduces himself to people and he goes, hi, my name's Odin. I have type one diabetes. And these little kids are like, what? And he goes, he goes, yeah, it's when your pancreas doesn't work. It doesn't make insulin. And he's like, insulin's the key to put blood sugars in your cells. And like, he tells us all this stuff and it's really incredible. It's really charming. And, um, he's not ashamed of it. We're really trying hard not to make it seem like it's a burden or that he's other. And, uh, I don't know. He's, he's got these natural leadership qualities anyway that I, that I think, this is going to be okay in the long run. Like he's going to embrace it. But one thing I really like about this kid is he's always been in touch with his emotions. So a lot of the trauma that he'd experienced has been able to express it. He's been able to say why he's upset and why he's pissed off. And, and then we also took him to have been taking him to play therapy. And she generally, the woman that does play therapy with him does it behind closed doors. So she'll, we'll do like a little interaction. She'll close the door mom and dad will wait outside and then they'll invite us back in afterwards to share some things with us. And I've heard some things going on in there where he's like expressed some real outrage, like playing with toys. And um, so I know it's not all like, you know, lollipop and gumdrops. Like he's definitely, it's created trauma for him in the short term and it will create baggage for him in the, in the long term. I'm sure of it. And it's going to be our job to make sure that he has the resources to navigate it appropriately but also that he knows that over time and as he gets older, that he has access to these resources, that nothing's off limits, that it's an exceptional circumstance and he's going to have to treat it like that. But I think, you know, we're doing our best to make sure that he's 
capable. Man, that that kid. So he he sounds just like a lot of the kids that I've seen at diabetes camp growing up, where mm. they just they jump right into it. They're little sponges. They absorb all of that information. So if you haven't thought about sending him to diabetes camp, find out if there's one near you because I started going when I was six years old. It uh-huh. was the best thing ever. Best really? part of my summer. Yes. Okay. It was awesome. Cool. Yeah, I'll make a note of that. There is actually one nearby. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I actually made one of my best friends at uh, diabetes camp, and my co-host Jesse, I met at camp. She was my counselor in training, and then actually no, she was my camper first, and then she was my counselor in training. That's awesome. So Odin has the uh, the chance to make lifelong friends through a diabetes camp. Cool. That's great. Yeah, and I think he needs that. He needs to know how exceptional he is and how extraordinary his circumstances. And a lot of kids need to be around other kids with diabetes. Even if he's really in control of his emotions now, or maybe not necessarily in control of them, but in touch with them, yeah. knowing other kids with it really helps helps people not feel alone. And mm-hmm. so it was astonishing to me when I found out years later that it's not normal for kids with diabetes to go to diabetes camp. That was not a normal, a normal thing that most people do. And so when we started this podcast and started talking to people, we found out that most people had never met another type one in their life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, we have, interestingly, we live in a small town and one of the guys that Rachel, my wife went to high school with, his son was diagnosed with type one last summer and he and Odin are the same age. And so we're about 15 minutes apart. And then our neighbors from up the street, their daughter is also type one and she's older. She's about 16 but they've been great resources and allies too. So it's, it's very interesting. Like people come out of the woodwork when this, when this happens. Yeah, know? they do. And part of that might also be an increase in diagnoses over the years, which is unfortunate, but also a good resource for other people. Yeah. So you're only a few months in at this point. Have you been able to figure out if there are anything any like any favorite things that you have about type one so far? Yeah, a lot, actually, you know, the day he was diagnosed, it, I mean, it was emotional. It was traumatic for everybody. I remember walking outside when I finally got a break and he finally got in the ICU. And I walked over to the car that my wife was in waiting and I just broke down and, and cried. And as I was crying, like as I was, I was heaving, right? I, this thought came into my mind. It was like, this is what you were meant to do all along. And I don't know where it came from. It's a really organic thought but it was really powerful too. And it was like, this isn't a curse. This isn't a punishment. This is also non-negotiable reality. And so you'd better make the most of it. And so for me, it was really easy to jump into like learning something new and being excited about learning something new. And it was really exciting to like galvanize my relationship with Odin you know, I, I had the opportunity to be his primary caregiver because mom wasn't allowed in the hospital. And while I felt bad about that, it was also such a great opportunity to be close to him and to bond with him on a level that we hadn't bonded with before because he had never almost died before. And um, since then, like I try to look at it, I, I'm trying not to project anything on him because his experience is going to be his own, but I'm trying not to project on him but I hope for him, I hope we give him enough information and model enough behavior to where he sees it as 
just another part of his life and that the training that he needs and the acumen that he develops to be good at managing it and the discipline that it requires to live a long and healthy life is going to bleed over into other aspects of his life, you know, so that he actually, he, he takes some of that and applies it to like other things that he does, whether it's academics or sports or um, relationships. And just like, you know, my hope is that he, it's sort of an impetus for him to always want to know more and always want to get more information and make informed decisions. That's awesome. So I don't think I've ever had someone say, Oh, there's multiple things that I have favorites about type one diabetes because Mostly they're like, yes, it sucks. And I have all the reasons, all these least favorite things. So name mm. one least favorite thing about type one so far. It's having to say no or plan ahead for bolus. It, it, <laughs> you know, it's it, in all honesty, like you want to be able to tell a five-year-old yes, right? Like let them be kids. And we do for the most part, but just having to think in advance and also having to think strategically in terms of communicating that to him. You know, so he's not sneaking and he's also not making, he's not turning food into leverage, you know, because that's kind of a tightrope. And so we're trying to be very conscious of like, hey, nothing's off limits. You just have to tell us. Because I'd rather that than walk into his room and find like five Starburst wrappers, you know, and him (laughs) hiding in a corner with, you know, going into keto. Like I... Like if his blood sugar reads to your phone, he would be busted anyway. Yeah, totally. Totally true. Yeah. But you know, we're, I, I remember um, our first phone call with one of the, his social worker from his Barbara Davis care team. And we're on the call with the social worker and all of a sudden it's silence behind us. And I go into the room next door and he's taken out five fruit, fruit roll-ups, the whole box, <laughs> undone them all and eaten them all uh. in like the 10 minutes we were talking to her. And so, so I was like, okay, well, we need to have like some pretty creative communication strategies around food and carbohydrate and sugar, and it can't be no, no, no all the time. So that's, that's probably been the hardest thing. But I, you know, I also want to contrast that to like, you know, in the cancer communities, there's the whole like F cancer ethos, you know, like F cancer that, or, you know, F any disease basically, because it's a huge inconvenience and it stinks and it's painful and it's traumatic and it's sad. I'm very careful not to go into that mindset as a parent. And I don't want to communicate that to him either. Basically, when I hear people say F diabetes, for me, you end up living in that mindset. And it closes the door to what good could come from it or what possibility comes from it. And listen, I'm not trying to diminish the experience, but like we all have things that we suffer from in our lives. And if it's not type one, it's something else. And wishing that it would all just go away isn't the way the world works can confirm (laughs) yep and i just i want him like like what i'm modeling even though internally sometimes it's really hard is i want him to know that there's like diabetes only has to be six or seven percent of his life experience Mm. there's so much more to his day and to his life that's available and there's so much more happiness and so many more cool experiences and there's nothing off limits for him. I mean, he can't be in the military, which is kind of a blessing, but you know, you can do anything you want. Yeah. I, th- I think the only, when I was growing up, the only two things were airline pilot and military. And now it's just military, which is super cool. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, we see all the time like cops with Dexcoms on and you know, he's like, anytime there's a character like an, um, What's the Panda movie that just came out? 
turning red. Yeah, turning red. So he saw that. He's like, what? Like that girl's got a Dexcom or like a sensor. That's so cool. So yeah, I think as it, as it, he becomes more aware of the opportunities to him, hopefully that'll make sense to him too. Like, you know, he gets to choose whether or not diabetes defines him or whether it ruins his life. Oh yeah. It sounds like you have a a pretty healthy mindset around diabetes. So at this point, have you experienced burnout as a parent of a type one? Yeah, my burnout happened last week and it was, it was short and sweet, which are most of mine, but it's basically involved me yelling at our pharmacist and storming out of the, storming out of the drugstore. And then I got home and it, it was like, it was a level of, it was a lack of control that I had not felt in a very, very long time, quickly followed by grief, regret, anger, <laughs> denial, depression, you know, whole full, full cycle of those things. So yeah, it was the first time I where in maybe five months where the adrenaline had finally worn off and like I'd let in a little space for that to happen. And it happened with a vengeance, mm. but it didn't last very long because it can't. That was it's just, I, I mean, on a practical level, we're keeping a kid alive. Like you just, I think I'm also by virtue of coaching and coaching strategies, I think I'm able to recognize indulgent thoughts, things that don't yeah. serve me. And if you I weren't going to mention that I, w- I was going to. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's really important. It, it's a skill set and it's an offering for all of your listeners. And I know, I know you believe this a hundred percent that like we have more access to personal strength and our ability to like make the most of, out of our circumstances than we think we do. Oh yeah. hundred percent agree. Switching gears a little bit to talk about your niche in the coaching world. So yeah. you're a divorce coach for men. What was the timeline between your own separation and Odin's diagnosis? And then how is that kind of affecting your relationship with Rachel? Yeah. So it's interesting because some people see type one, I think is like the catalyst for a separation. But I think Rachel and I had been on that road for a little while. Anyways, I think we had been dissatisfied with the course of the relationship and she was actively exploring ways to fix it where I was sort of checked out. And so by the time the diagnosis came around, by the time we were in the hospital, I think she'd already kind of made up her mind and that was just sort of like, it was a little bit of a speed bump before she actually got to say it for if you're functional, then it's really nice to have a partner managing diabetes, managing your child's diabetes. We were pseudo functional, but with the advent of the separation, the separation, um, she asked me for separation about three weeks after the, the diagnosis. So after we'd gotten home from Mexico, we approached the separation with an ideal that we had started as friends before we'd become romantic. So we had a foundation there. We had enjoyed our marriage together for the most part. We have a beautiful little boy and we wanted to model like what good parenting and good communication looks like for him. And the flip side of that is also like, model that staying in a relationship that both people aren't happy in is not a good example. And so, you know, we had to explore that too and be honest with ourselves about that. So in a lot of ways, what the diagnosis has done is it has locked us in 
to the higher ideal and the higher expectations of like being mature, communicating well, communicating around his diabetes, finding common, common ground, collaboration and compassion for each other because it's hard. And now that we're sharing him, we don't, we don't spend nights in the same house anymore. It means that if I have him for four days and I get two nights in a row or I get an hour of sleep, the other person knows what's happening and can be compassionate and can lend a hand or can offer to help. And we both, we're both coaches. We both work from home. We both have some free time. We both create our own schedules. So that's been fortunate and it's been beneficial. But type one didn't drive us away. I think it's brought, brought us closer. I actually really love that. My co-host, Jesse, her parents divorced, I think, shortly after she was diagnosed as well. And their relationship was a little bit more contentious than sounds like yours and Rachel's is. And then we have another friend that uh, I grew up with at camp. His parents were divorced when he was a kid, and their relationship is completely terrible. (laughs) So having that ideal ahead of time going into it and knowing that you want to reach that ideal, I think that's a great mindset to go into it with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all mindset, right? And I think one of the things that's so tragic about relationships is, is the ideas we hold on to about what they're supposed to be and how we fight reality and we, and we blame other people for that reality. But I'm not holding on to that. I don't have a whole lot of religious connotations around marriage. I have some, you know, some sort of popular societal ones, you know, like marriage is good, divorce is failure, you know, and you have to kind of parse through those and wade through them and figure out what's, what's beneficial and what isn't. Yeah. What should some parents know about how type one affects emotions and relationships between spouses? So you just modeled a really good example of going into it with intention. What are some pitfalls they should watch out for? Yeah. So anytime you're communicating via text or any other kind of like abbreviated messaging system, there's bound to be misinterpretation. And one of the ways that things get, get misinterpreted, I mean, think about it. It's a perfect storm. You're exhausted you're scared. You're probably worried about money. You're worried about your child's life. You're worried about your own well-being. And you're also, you're navigating to a greater or lesser extent, some animosity between spouses. There's two ways to look at it. One is when you're inclined to misinterpret messages from the other spouse, especially when it comes to the care of the child, don't. But if you, if you have to reach out for clarification. And on the other side of it, when you're communicating, I'm a pretty like I'm a pretty direct and efficient communicator and that doesn't always come across as nice or compassionate. So, I'm very careful to say what needs to be said but also add add like almost add like a little bit of humor. Like it's almost like I'm on the spectrum and I'm like, okay, how would a normal person make this seem kind of lighthearted? And um the other thing I want to point out about that too is okay, there are walkie-talkie apps and I think this has been really efficient for us is texting. Of course, one of the pitfalls of texting is, is you can miscommunicate. Phone calls are obnoxious because there's formality. You have to wait for somebody to pick up. You have to wait for them to answer. You have to ask them how their day was. You have to say, Oh, hold on a second. I want to talk to you about this. And it's kind of a pain in the butt. There's an app called Voxer that I've used for my coaching clients. And I use it now. Rachel and I use it now. And basically, you just press the microphone and you say what you need to say. Hey, he looks a little bit high right now. What's happening? And they just respond, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got it. You know, that alert was five minutes ago. I gave him a starburst or whatever. You can hear the tone of their voice. You can hear the nuance and the emphasis. You can hear if they're stressed out or not. And that, that way, no assumption has to take place. 
And I think that's probably the, the biggest issue with communication in general, but especially with T1D, like parents of T1Ds, is like, if you're stressed out, if you don't have any sleep, if you're already angry, do your best to put yourself in a in an environment of communication that doesn't rely on assumption. Yes. Yes. You can infer so much meaning from whether somebody included or did not include a period. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. And then our yeah. human brains can make up stories about how oh, they're mad or like, this is more serious than I thought it was, or this is flippant because they just said these like letters uh, O and K instead of actually spelling out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then there's also, there's an ideal too, right? So if we're talking about expectations or if we're talking about like being the best versions of parents that we can be, think about what your ideal is. And whenever I'm about to lose patience, and sometimes I do, and whenever I'm about to be snarky or sarcastic or mean, I think about like what my best version would do. And I go, would, would my best version do this? And the whole, the whole purpose of the best version is that we're trying to set, let me say it a different way. Whatever we do to our spouse affects our child. If we're fighting about money, if we're hoarding money, if we're selfish, if we're greedy, if we're scarce, it's going to get communicated to our kid. If like one of the things that I took on early and I was really uncomfortable with it. Um, and some days I am too, is I said, I said, don't worry about diabetes care. Anytime you go to the pharmacy, I'll pay for it. Send me a Venmo. I'll pay for it. And in the back of my head, I was like, I don't know how you're going to do that, but you've committed to it and it feels right. And I'll, I'll figure it out. And what's been great about that is it, it says, I'm taking this off your plate. This is an act of kindness when there are some days where I don't feel like being kind to you, but this will always be there. That's a constant. And I do it not only for her, but I do it because it creates bandwidth so that she can better take care of Odin. And that's my priority. Oh, I love that. So in the coaching world, we kind of talk about, we talk about best self and uh, favorite self. Now all kind of relates to future self. Mm. So if you could peer into your future by 10 years, what does that version of Jay have to say to you now about Odin and about type 1 diabetes? I think he'd say, good job on not following, like sniffing every lead that says there's a cure for diabetes around the corner. <laughs> um, I think he would say, he would say, good for you and Rachel for establishing an expectation of what normal should look like and of what kindness and compassion and a work-life balance should look like even with dealing with type one. The inclination is probably to run ourselves into the ground because managing type one is kind of a form of PTSD. And we don't even know we're in it when we're doing it. But as parents, we are, we are bird dogs. We're looking at every single thing in real time and we don't sleep and we've got tons of information going through our heads. And so my future self would look at me and say, good job for slowing down. Good job for taking it a day at a time. Congratulations on loving Odin every minute that you're with him and creating a loving and compassionate environment with your spouse or with your ex-wife or a strange partner. Like you did that right. And also you took care of yourself. You exercised, you meditated, you ate right. You didn't fall into some abyss of drinking or drug use. 
you stayed focused, you stayed present, you stayed healthy. Future Jay sounds like a really together guy. Yep. I think he will be. (laughs) And the best part is you get to become him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. All right. Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners? Yeah. For, for type one books, I'd be amazed if your listeners don't already have these books, but Sugar Surfing and Think Like a Pancreas have been great. Think Like a Pancreas is, um, seems to be more of like the, um, sort of historical reference of diabetes from start to like, like what care used to look like versus what it looks like now and sort of the strategies you can employ to, to manage it and what's available. Sugar surfing is a little bit more, more esoteric and sort of once you've been managing T1D long enough, you start to realize it's an art form, not just a science. And so I think it kind of alludes to that in terms of things outside of the T1D realm, like things to just keep your, your head straight. There's a book by John Kabat-Zinn called Where, Wherever We Go, There We Are. That's a book on meditation. And every page is just a little sort of meditative thought. And then finally, if you're a man exploring divorce with a partner, or if you're a man exploring divorce with a partner and you're parenting a child with T1D, Glennon Doyle wrote a book called Untamed, which is primarily from the feminist perspective. And I have found it so enlightening in the process of my separation and divorce and seeing my ex-wife's perspective and her needs and sort of it's given me insight into what marriage and divorce are supposed to mean and what we can allow them to mean and what we can want them to mean. And that's sort of how it defines our experience through marriage and through divorce. That's awesome. We'll link to all of those books in the show notes. Cool. So what projects are you working on right now that you're excited about? So many. (laughs) Part of being a coach and an entrepreneur, as you know, is that you have millions of ideas and some of them get done right away and some of them take a long, long, long time to happen. I've been working on my podcast, Reinventing Adulthood, for, for quite a while. We've got eight episodes out, but I'm looking to start streamlining that production process more. And we'll be doing a lot of reinventing divorce episodes as well, sort of a, a subset. I'll be looking at writing a book called um, Reinventing Divorce as well very soon. I'm also, aside from the one-on-one coaching practice, I am in the process right now of creating an eight-week Reinventing Divorce group program for men and women. And that'll be an online program uh, that will happen once a week and is launching in July. That sounds awesome. So if you want to send me the links to all those, I can include them in the show notes as well. If our listeners want to connect with you either about your coaching work or your experience with being a parent of a type 1 diabetic, where can they find you online? So the easiest place to find me is at www.jrushcoaching.com. You can find all of my information about one-on-one coaching and reinventing divorce. If you want to message me at jrush underscore coaching on Instagram, I'd be happy to reach out, talk to you specifically about T1D, managing mindset and divorce also in that context. Yeah, that's where you can find me. That'll be awesome. So thank you again for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you, Colleen. It's nice to have somebody to talk to, as you know. (laughs) Yep. All right, everyone, you can find the links to everything we talked about in the show notes, along with Jay's contact information. Now it's your turn. After listening to Jay's experience, how would you want to approach the possibility of your child being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes? What can you start to think on purpose today that might help you prepare, if not for that, but for any difficult circumstance in the future? Remember, 
You control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Are you ready to feel better with type 1 diabetes without changing how you manage it? You too can go from resenting the highs and the lows to never again feeling like it's dragging your emotions behind the worst roller coaster ever. It starts with a free call. Ready to live your life without worrying about what your CGM says? Head to inspiredforward.com slash coaching to get started.